Church, pray with me. Father, when you graciously gave Isaiah a glimpse of your holy glory, he could no longer continue in the suppression of the truth of his sin. He could not contain himself, crying out, I am cursed, I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Father, I pray that you use this series in Romans and this sermon today to cause us to clearly see the truth of our sin. Because of you, sin isn't the last word. You use the knowledge of our sin so that when you hold before us that, that cleansing coal, we desire it. We treasure it above all else. We want nothing more than for that burning coal to touch our lips and take our guilt away. And that coal is your son, the only one righteous Jesus Christ, who you, God, put forward as a propitiation to be received by faith. Lord, we do not desire the... We do not desire to cure if we do not know the ailment. So, Father, help us to see our ailment for what it is so that we desire the one who is our cure. Convict us today with your word. Tear down the walls that are meant to suppress the truth that we too are the sinner whose wages of sin is death. Help us to see your beauty. Help us to see your glory. Help us to see your mercy, your love for us, despite our unrighteousness. Lord, you superintended Paul's words in the letter to the Romans in order that many throughout the ages have seen these truths. I pray you use them again this morning. I pray you bring everyone here today in this room together once again in the next age so that we may give thanks to you for showing us our sin, so that we may wholeheartedly cling to your righteousness. And I pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're finally here. We've made it to the last sermon of Paul's parenthetical on the unrighteousness of all of humanity. In chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul began to passionately speak about the gospel and the righteousness of God that is revealed. But in speaking of those things, Paul must have begun to think about how he could help the Romans feel zeal for the gospel the way he does. And it seems the best way to do that is to dwell on why we all need this gospel and righteousness revealed by God. So, chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter, verse, chapter 3, verse 20, Paul launches a 64-verse parenthetical, parentheses, exposing just how far from righteousness we really are. And that we have no hope, none. Except Paul was kind enough to give us that preview of a real hope in verse 17, which says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So, Lord willing, next Sunday we'll finally get to the verse I know many have been anticipating, including myself, chapter 3, verse 21, where Paul will pick up, back up on the thought and give us the good news. But until then, 
we have one more week where we get to dwell some more on our sinful disposition. My prayer is that today's passage will be the boiling point, boiling over point. Paul is building and building his case against us. We will have no excuse, no way out, no argument to bring before a righteous God. Our only hope will be something outside of ourselves because left on our own, we only achieve unrighteousness. So let's get into it. Let's turn now to Paul's final indictment against us. Our sermon passage today will be Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. And Paul writes this, concluding his parenthetical, starting in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none are righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through law comes knowledge of sin. Now normally, a good preacher's job in any given sermon is to expose how that week's Bible passage is God-centered. So that's to say, they focus... They work the focus on the beauty and majesty of God. After all, we know that all scripture is in some way about Jesus. And so the good preacher will highlight those things in a passage and make a sermon that is God-centered. Well, I have never claimed to be a good preacher. So today the sermon is going to be all about man. It will be a man-centered sermon. And so this sermon will be arranged in three man-centered points that I like to call the three we points. So let's jump into it. We point number one. We point number one. We are not entitled to God's favor. Our heritage is sin. Notice Paul begins our sermon passage with a question that perhaps feels similar to the question he posed in last week's passage. Let's look again back a few verses. In chapter 3 to verse 1, Paul asked the question, then what advantage has the Jew? Then he answers in verse 2, much in every way. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So as we learned last week, and as Pastor Justin pointed out, he will answer, Paul will answer even more uh, of the question later on, we learned that there is most surely an advantage to being a Jew. 
The advantage is that they are born into and living amongst a community of people whose lives are centered around the very words of God. Yet Paul then goes on to ask what seems to almost be an identical question in today's verse, verse 9. He asks, are we Jews any better off? Well, yeah, Paul, I I guess you just said we were. You told us that in the first place we have God's word, so yeah, of course, we're better off. No, not at all, Paul says, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So what is it that Paul means here? He says that the Jews have quite an advantage, but then he turns around and says, but you're not better off. Paul says, don't you remember, we have already brought up the charges that both Jew and Greek are under sin. What Paul means is that you and I are not entitled to God's favor. It is not something we can just expect because of who we are. Were you born into a great family? You are not better off. Were you born with great skill? you are not better off. Were you born into a great country who built its laws on gods? Were you born in a great city? Did you go to the right school? You are not better off. Were you born into a family that knows and follows God? You are not better off. Do you participate in the life of the church, serving, teaching, giving? You are not better off. Paul says that's well and good if you are born among God's people, but you are nonetheless under sin. So you're not better off than the poor sinner born in the wrong country with no education, no skills, who knows nothing of the things of God, even better off than those who will participate in evil and despicable things like that were previously enumerated in chapter 1. Paul says, no, not at all. You might remember there used to be a popular explanation of what the word sin means that many Christians and Christian leaders used to give they would do what's called an etymology of the word sin. If you know what that means, a quick definition of etymology is that it's an investigation of word histories. So you look at a word and see how it was used throughout history. And they would do this with the Hebrew word for sin and find that this word might have come from, at some point, the world of archery. And so the word meant that when you release your arrow and proceeded to miss the target or miss the mark, that's the bullseye, they would say a word that was at least really close to the Hebrew word for sin. Therefore, as it goes, sin is the same as missing the mark. Now, I, I love etymologies. Um, I'm one of those weirdos that like learning about stuff like that, uh, especially theological words. And if you're in my Sunday school class long enough... Uh, you're going to, at some point, sit through an etymology or two of a biblical theological word. However, there is something known as an etymological fallacy. An etymological fallacy is when you miss the mark in understanding the right use of the word by leaning too heavily on the findings of your etymology. And this is a great risk with biblical words. Just because people once used the word in a particular way, or maybe use a word a particular way now, doesn't mean that's how the biblical writers use the word. See? So Paul says you are under sin. 
and that's it. There's no almost righteousness. My arrow isn't any closer to the target than your arrow. Your arrow isn't any closer to the target than the liar, the thief, the murderer, the adulterer, the same-sex attracted person, the idolater. A little later, we'll give a more concise answer as to what sin is, the definition of sin, but for now, perhaps a better understanding of the word would be that when we held our bow to shoot the mark, to shoot that target of righteousness and notched our arrow, what we realized is that our fingers were actually broken and we dropped the arrow headfirst into our toe. And that still doesn't quite paint the right picture. Now Paul further drives home the point that our heritage is of sin, not of righteousness. He continues this in verse 10. Treat again, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Now, as it is written, that phrase there is the standard sign that what follows is scripture quotes. But in this section of verses, verses eight or 10 through 18, Paul does something here that may appear rather strange to the ears of many. After the charge given in verse 9, <clears throat> he hits us in the face with a, a scatter shot of Old Testament verses. And he does it in a way that most of us are not really used to. He appears to first pull these verses together, devoid of their context. So different groups of people are the original recipients of these rebukes quoted in 10 and through 18. In fact, some of the commentators are read, just throw up their hands and say, yeah, um, Paul just is not paying any attention to context or original meaning, and he's just <laughs> pulling in verses from wherever. Also, Paul seems to be doing something that is a bit of a pet peeve of mine whenever I've visited churches with friends and family. He doesn't just use one version of the scripture. Right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Right? When the preacher has some sort of topic or point they want to get across, and the way they back up their claim, support their claim, is they have 10 different verses up on the screen from 10 different translations. And most of the translations you never even heard of. Well, Paul doesn't quite go that far. Most of what he quotes is from what is the Greek, what was the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was in use uh, in the day of Jesus and Paul. But sometimes he seems to just use his own translation. And even when he does use a standard translation, he often throws together two parts of different verses to make a new sentence or gives an abridgment of the quote or rearranges the flow of the verses. So if you would, permit me for a minute to do a quick rundown of how Paul puts these Bible quotes together. The second half of verse 10 through verse 12 is a mashup of Psalm 14, 1 through 3, and Psalm 53, 1 through 3. Here, Paul even deviates from both the Greek translation and the original Hebrew and switches the word in verse 10 of, that says, does good for is righteous. The first two lines of verse 13 is a quote to the second part of Psalm 5, 9. The third line of verse 13 is the second half of Psalm 140, verse 3. And verse 14 is adapted from Psalm 10, 7. Verse 15 is an abridgment of the first half of Isaiah 59, 7. 
Verse 16 is from the second half of the same verse, Isaiah 59, verse 7. And then verse 17 is the first part of Isaiah 59, verse 8. And finally, verse 18 is from the second half of Psalm 36, 1. Okay, so why? Why does Paul hit us with this blast of verses? Well, actually, it is Paul's use of these verses that led me really to our point number one of we are not entitled to God's favor or heritage of sin. Remember how we were all taught to write an essay in high school? First you write your introduction that states two or three points that you're going to talk about. Then you write the points that you're talking about. And then what do we do next? We write a conclusion that says the same thing we just said two times, right? I think Paul is doing something rather similar here with this passage. This passage of chapter 3, verses 9 through 20 is basically a restating and conclusion of what he has already said. And what he has already said, in perhaps an overly simplistic way, is that Gentiles are sinners even though they do not have the law, and that Jews are sinners even though they have the law. This is why he says that Jews are not better off. Before God, their standing is still unrighteousness. So I think Paul is not ignoring the context, the original context of the passages he's quoting. Rather, I think what he's doing, he is using the context of those passages, which in their original hearing were aimed towards particular groups of people. And now Paul is saying, when it comes to sin and unrighteousness before God, what's true of the Gentiles, what's true of the enemies of God, what's true of the genetic descendants of God's chosen people, what's true of the Jews, what's true of each of these people is true for all of these people. None, no, not one, is entitled to God's favor because our real heritage, our true inheritance that we're born with is sin. Suppression of the truth of God's glory, it is unrighteousness. Paul has built his case and it appears that we have no hope. We point number two. We use the very things God gave us to boldly sin. We use the very things God gave us to boldly sin. Amidst this litany of verses Paul shoots us with, Paul is not ready to let up. He's still making his case. Remember, he is pointing to the fact that no matter who you are, you are unrighteous. And he uses these series of verses, verses 13 through 18, to show that the very things that are integral to what we are, we use for unrighteous means. Notice how these verses describe the way we use our natural innate body parts to sin against God. In verse 13 and 14, all our parts are used for speaking and communication, and all these parts are oozing with sin. Look at verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. That's what mine feels like right now. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. In other words, our speech condemns us. The very things that God gave us, we use for sin. James chapter 3, verse 6 through 9, basically summarizes this best. So I'll use him here. He expounds this truth for us. In verse 6, he says... 
and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Our throat, our tongue, our mouth, our lips, the things God gave us to praise Him with, we use for evil. And now let's look at verses 15 and 17. Paul turns now to our feet. He says, Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. In other words, our feet, which should run the way of God's commandments, like Psalm 119.32 says, are employed to conduct wicked deeds. And lastly, in verse 18, Paul speaks of her eyes. Look at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, we do not see what should be clearly perceived with our eyes. Even they participate in the suppression of the truth. As one commentator on these verses remarked, how graphic is this picture of human depravity? We use the very things God gave us to boldly sin. Well, we point number three. We are without a means to recover from our sin. The letter to the Romans now returns to a discussion about law in verses 19 and 20. Paul's earlier discussion about law came in chapter 2, verses 12. If you look back, you can see this. For all have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Verse 13, for it is the hearer of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So these verses back in chapter 2 seem to clearly be talking specifically about the law given through Moses at Sinai, a law specific to the Jewish people. But what about in today's passage? I don't think that these two verses in... uh, Verses 19 and 20 are really make much sense if this is how we assume Paul is continuing to use the word law. It makes much more sense to see Paul using the word law in a broader sense. So let's look again at verse 19. It says this, chapter 3, verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. How can the whole world be held accountable to God, to a law given specifically to a narrow group of people, namely the Jews? Well, quite simply, it cannot. So the word law here then must refer to something broader than just the Mosaic law. Paul's more likely referring to God's word in general. Actually, I believe what Paul is alluding to here is that in some way, every human being 
is under some kind of law. Where, where do I see that? Well, follow me here. First, let's go back to an earlier question that we posed. What, what is sin? The Westminster Shorter Catechism gives us a great concise answer, so I'm going to use that here. It says this, Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. In other words, if you have not done what the law tells you to do, or you have done what the law tells you not to do, you have sinned. So I cannot transgress the law if there is no law. So sin and law have some sort of connection. Now there's another word that is connected to the word law, and that is the word covenant. Whenever you have a covenant, there is law. The Bible very often makes this connection between covenant and law. For instance, listen to uh, what Exodus 34, verse 27 says about this. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So, so he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread or drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, what? The Ten Commandments. So here we see law and covenant go together. Okay, now stay with me. Turn to Hosea. I want you to see this. Turn to Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. The first part of this verse says this. But, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Now, whoever they is at the moment does not really matter because what, I'm, what I want to point to is that the they did something. And that something was to transgress the covenant law. And it says the like manner in which they transgressed this covenant law. And what in like manner does the verse say they transgressed it like? Like Adam. Adam transgressed the law. Adam was a transgressor of the law. Adam sinned. The wages of sin is death, and all he and all of his descendants will receive this wage. Why? Because we, all, Jew or Gentile, have broken God's law. We Gentiles in this room may not be under any Jewish law specifically, but make no mistake, we are under God's law. And Paul has spent the last several weeks making the case that we are sinners and there are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. We have all transgressed the law. We are under it in such a way that it blares the horn of our condemnation so that all our mouths may be stopped and we have no defense. We are accountable to a righteous, holy God and we are without means to recover from our own sin. We are lost. The case has been made. The prosecution rests. Even if we were to start today and never again sin, Paul says this, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. The law now only serves to show us more clearly our unrighteousness, since through the law come knowledge of sin. 
Well, there you are. We are none of us good. None in this room is any better than the lowest of sinners. The lowliest of sinner, you are not any worse off than any in this room when it comes to standing before God the just. Not one of us has a righteousness to bear and display in the courtroom of God. We will be found lacking. If you have followed Paul's case against us, he has left us with no reprieve, no way out. We are buried. We are dead. We stand no chance of acquittal. That is, of course, if we stop here at verse 20. But Paul does not stop at verse 20. He continues in verse 21. He graciously gave a glimpse to us in chapter 1, verse 17. But now, finally, in chapter 3, verse 21, he has decided we are primed and ready to hear what is our one and only hope to escape the condemnation of a just God. So, Pastor Justin, I'll have to ask your forgiveness because I'm going to step into your sermon next week. So you won't have anything left to talk about. But I can't just leave it at verse 20. We all need to hear verse 21. Verse 21 no longer makes, us, makes for us we points. It is gloriously God-centered and graciously applies a perfect healing salve to the wounds God has been afflicting. Paul has been inflicting on us. So church, hear me with the good news. Hear with me the good news of verse 21. Look down at that, please. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. After God, Paul has made his case, God has made his case against us, we read, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. God has indeed provided an avenue for us to recover from our sin and is thankfully not in our hands because we would just mess it up again. No, he provides for us and to us a righteousness that belongs to the one that will not squander it and receive this righteousness through faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for not leaving us in our sin. For providing the only way in which we can be righteous. And that is not our own doing, but it is the righteousness provided to us through your Son who forgave us. And you gave him to us. We can inherit your favor through the one who is entitled to it. We can use your gift to boldly claim righteousness in your presence. This is because we are clothed in a righteousness that is not our own, but is a righteousness from another. We are now within, we are now with a means to recover from our sin because you have provided someone greater than the law. Father, cause us to truly see our sin so that we may with clear eyes look upon the righteous Son and desire Him. Free us from sin and law. Give us Your mercy and grace. Justify us in Your Son through Your grace by the gift of faith alone. 
We thank you for your willingness to give up your son for us who do not seek after you, who are not righteous. And we pray these things, Father, by your spirit, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.